Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting with verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a judge, a king, to judge us like all the nations. But the, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people. In all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen, run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice. Make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, as we read this passage perhaps even see an echo in our own culture and country today, Lord. Help us to see where Israel was, was sinful and what you call your people to do. And Lord, help us to learn from this. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we read that passage, didn't you get the sense of, oh no, Israel is doing it again. Two weeks ago, we read chapters 4 through 7 and saw how stiff-necked and disobedient Israel was in turning after foreign gods, treating the Ark of the Covenant as some magic relic, rejecting the counsel of Samuel, and and then paying for all of that dearly with the lives of 34,000 men, as well as the capture of the Ark. And it took 20 years for Israel to finally repent, but that repentance was short-lived. And as we see in verse 5, when Samuel grew old and the Israelites didn't like the prospects of following his sons, they demanded a king. And know what they demanded. Make us a king to judge us like 
all the nations. Well, what did that mean? You may not know this, but in Deuteronomy 17, God anticipated that the people would desire a king. Listen to the passage and compare it to 1 Samuel 8 as I read. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king among you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in this kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So God not only anticipated that Israel would ask for a king, but specifically provided for the situation. But here's the problem. What God meant when he said that Israel could one day have a king like the nations, it was simply saying that like the other countries had kings, so Israel could have a king. But he would be one that the Lord and not the nation chose to be king over them. And this king would be different. He would not do all the things that Samuel warned Israel that their king would do. He would not multiply to himself horses and wives and money. Instead, he would actually write out by hand a copy of the law of God, and he would meditate upon that law so that God's principles would be the foundation of his kingdom. He was to be the Lord's servant because God is the true king. That's the difference. And that's not what's going on in 1 Samuel 8. Israel wants a king like the nations around them, all right, exactly like the nations have. They wanted a powerful, wealthy, and exalted ruler of their choice that for them presented the image and the picture of what a strong and mighty king would look like. But as... God tells Samuel in verses 11 through 17 to warn them this king would not only multiply horses to himself and money, but would take their children, would take their livestock, would take their property, would be so onerous to them that they would be like slaves and they would cry out to him like they once had done in Egypt. What God is saying is what you want for yourself is a return to bondage. That's what you're asking for. That doesn't sound like a humble law-abiding servant king that God prescribes in Deuteronomy 17. So why would Israel want a different king? I'll say more about that in a moment, but the primary reason is explained in verse 7 when God tells Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. 
They don't want a king who puts me first. They don't want a king that applies my law to the land. They want a king who will magnify himself, who will enlarge himself, so as to deceive the people into thinking that they cannot exist without him rather than without me. And the Puritan Samuel Rutherford wrote a famous book titled Lex Rex, which is Latin for the law is king. And it reflects Deuteronomy 17's vision of a king, one who would recognize that God's law was the absolute standard and the highest authority. It was the kind of king that the Israelites, well, they believed the opposite principle, didn't they? They wanted Rex Lex. The king is law. But that's the type of king that the nations had. And perhaps you know from the book of Esther how King Xerxes, when, when he sent out a decree to put to death all the Israelites in Persia, how he tells Esther, Esther, I am sorry, I can't reverse what I said. And then we read in Esther, because my word is law. That was Rex Lex, the king is law. But that's not the way God had set it up. And undoubtedly, you're probably thinking of parallels to American government. The constitutional republic that our founders originally created was rooted in the law of God. Put a, a real limitation on the powers of civil government. And it recognized that rights and laws originate from God. And acknowledged that all men are created equal, ruled by the providential hand and absolute standards of God. It restricted the power to levy taxes and kept the federal government small. In other words, much like Deuteronomy 17, the country's leadership was designed so as not to multiply to itself horses and silver and lands. It was to know the law of God, or at least it ruled in a climate, in a culture that acknowledged God and applied his principles. But over the next two centuries... Americans began to cry out for a king like the pagan nations. In this case, for a socialistic government. We hear people all the time equating our current president with socialism, but the truth is that our government's worldview has been socialistic for some time, to one extent or another. For at least the last hundred years, our federal government has used taxes and public agencies to control the American marketplace. So whether we're talking about recent bailouts or the creation of the Federal Reserve System, the American market has long been anything but truly free. And God warned Israel that the king that they wanted would take their money and their sons and their lands from him. And you, know, you think back that $700 billion bailout of a decade ago, the recent stimulus packages, each of these are just parts of what were, in fact, a large redistribution of wealth with billions going out to special interest groups. And the only way to pay for all of that is how? For the federal government to multiply to itself silver through taxes and other revenue sources. Consider that in verse 15, God tells Samuel that not only will the king take more resources for himself than he should from the people, but that he will also take property and goods from the people, give that to his servants. In other words, the resources of the whole will be redistributed to benefit the few that are favored by the king. And that too is parallel 
with the American system where proportional taxes take resources from the whole, redistribute them to the few that the government favors. And how else do we explain such programs as welfare or subsidies or other special types of programs? Not only does, does the whole support the few, but the whole is disproportionately taxed so that the wealthiest of the land provide the majority of the redistributed funds. Now, I won't even talk about how the wealthy have the means and resources to reduce that burden proportionately, disproportionately so that you, the middle class, actually shoulder the majority of that, right? The fact is that the kings throughout centuries, not just today, not just in Israel, have multiplied to themselves silver and horses, uh, horses and given it to their servants. But God intends the civil government to cherish and support the worship of God, to defend the church, to regulate our lives in a manner that exhibits biblical principles, to promote justice, and to establish peace. He intends that human governments should be restrained by his law. And so it's dangerous when civil governments throw off that restraint and seek unbiblical power. And those in power and their supporters will trust them with greater powers beyond those prescribed in the Bible. There may indeed appear, I think, to some to be short-term benefits to empowering our governments to solve the problems of society, but in the long run, what happens? Statism, socialism, it always proves to be disastrous. So what was Israel to do? What did God want them to do? Let's look a little more closely at the passage. Verse 1 says that when Samuel became old, he made his sons to be judges over Israel. Now, I don't know if you caught that the first time we read it. Samuel treated the position of judge as a hereditary position that had not been done before. Even Gideon, whom the people wanted to actually make a king, had refused to serve as king or, or assumed that his son would judge after him. You know, according to Judges 8.22, we read, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They wanted... They wanted a hereditary judgeship. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So at least Gideon recognized, even though he had many other sinful failings, that it was the Lord who appointed judges for Israel. Eli, the judge before Samuel, appointed his sons as priests, but he did not appoint them as hereditary judges. So why did Samuel do this? Well, none know. And the Bible doesn't say. But I wonder if Samuel unwittingly contributed to Israel's lack of trust. Whatever may have been the unforeseen and unintended consequences of Samuel appointing his sons, the fact is that his sons, Joel, which ironically means Yahweh is God, it's a great name, and Abijah, whose name means Yahweh is my father, were corrupt judges. They took bribes and they perverted justice. And so, understandably, the people are afraid that if Samuel doesn't do something, that he'll die and they'll be stuck with these two 
guys as judges. But know what they don't say. They don't say, Samuel, please ask the Lord to appoint for us a righteous judge. They don't say that. They say, give us a king like the nations. What their reasoning is, is that if Samuel can appoint his sons as rulers, as judges, then, then he can appoint instead a king over them. And as I said earlier, the offense was not so much that they asked for a king because Deuteronomy 17 provided for that, but they wanted their own type of king, one who would be like the kings of the pagan nations. And God had called Israel to be separate. He had called Israel to be under his rule and care, and Israel wanted to give up that status as a nation set apart instead wanted to be just like their neighbors. And verse 6 says that this matter was evil in Samuel's eyes. Now, I know it doesn't say that probably in your version. It says this displeased Samuel, but that's really mild. Even the ESV translates it that way, of this thing displeased Samuel. makes it seem like he's irritated that they would want a king instead of him to judge them. But the Hebrew is more forceful. It says that he considered it evil, and that, that has this moral aspect to it. It was wrong. It was evil in the sense of evil against God. And so he did the right thing and he prayed. And the Lord said, obey the words of the people. And perhaps as you read that part, you said, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't seem right. Especially if you realize that the Hebrew says that Samuel recognized this was evil. Why would God say, go do it? Why wouldn't he, you know, send out a, a small plague? <laughs> what are you doing? Notice in verse 7, obey their voice in all that they ask of you. You see, God was going to give them over to their desires as a form of discipline. He told Samuel to do what the people asked, but to solemnly warn them. They they knew with their eyes open what was going to happen. If they're going to get a king, it will be knowing full well what is, is going to take place. And in the verses that follow, we hear the words, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take, over and over again. The king will take your sons, your daughters, your land, your money, your servants, all for his own purposes. And how sad it is in verse 18 that Samuel says that in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord is not going to answer. He will not answer in that day. The Israelites should have sought God through Samuel. But we already saw how back in chapter 4 that they first sought their own wisdom. Well, here we have Several decades later, they're still making the same foolish decisions. This is Israel's folly. They will not seek the Lord again until they are threatened by the Philistines during the reign of Saul. In the meantime, God gives them what they desire. And I think one of the important applications of this is this. Sometimes God will give you what you desire. Sometimes he will give you what you desire because he knows that you are asking out of self-centered short-sightedness and he wants you to find yourself in the situation where you realize you have not been seeking him and instead have been pursuing your own goals 
And when you come to the end of yourself and repent from your actions, God will be there. But there are times when we are in a time of suffering and God is waiting until we learn through the hard school of experience that we should not ask and seek for those types of things that are not his kingdom. Speaking of sending his discipline to us, you know, what's interesting in in this passage too is that in sending Samuel to warn the people solemnly, I think a second application of this is God usually, even though he will discipline us and allow us to pursue our own desires, he usually has the mercy of telling us ahead of time, especially through his word, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be seeking that. I mean, think about how from chapter 4 through chapter 8, God has provided Samuel to Israel. His voice was right there. All they needed to do was ask. We saw that back in chapter 4. Why 34,000 men have to die? Because they are so stubborn. Why is this going to be happening here in chapter 8? Because they are so stubborn. We're told that the word of Samuel came to all Israel, that the people would not listen to him, but through it all, Samuel is faithful. And here's a third kind of small application, and that is there, we are potentially in a time where the people are not listening. They're not hearing, but we need to continue to be faithful to preach and speak the Word of God and wise solutions. The church, like Samuel, has a duty to bring the Word of God to the people, and that is a sacred commission of God to us. Why are men and women not willing to listen to God who offers to save His people even at high cost to Himself? Why are they instead willing to pay the high price of a king? Well, it's because the Israelites believed that they would get something in return for that cost. They assumed that their king would make decisions for them, would tell them what to do, would fight their battles for them, and so on. And a review of their history should have reminded them that it is not the ruler who brings peace and prosperity, but God. It's not the ruler who is worthy of their faith, but the Lord, right? But the truth is, people, most people spend a great deal of their lives trying to find or win or buy or build security. Have you found that yet? Are there enough locks and alarms in your home? Do you hold adequate insurance for property and and person? Have you accumulated sufficient savings? Are you in possession of satisfactory health insurance? Have you made enough contacts and acquired enough power and generated enough influence, exerted enough control, earned enough affection that you're secure? Don't eat processed foods if you want to avoid lung cancer. Recycle if you want to avoid ecological disaster. Some of you can remember a time when people were spending tens or even hundreds or thousands of dollars building their own personal nuclear fallout shelters. Some of you did the same thing 22 years ago in preparation for the new millennium when everything was expected to fall apart. 
We have a lot of fears and insecurities. And thus we are by nature led to hope that our leaders will provide us with that security. And that's what's going on in 1 Samuel 8. They wanted more than a king. They wanted security. That's what's going on in 1 Samuel 8. And that's what, unfortunately, the people of America want also. We want someone who will negotiate for us, who will fight our wars, who will make the important decisions. We don't believe that God could provide these kinds of securities. And so we as a people, Israel as a people, are willing to give up their liberty, convinced that they'll get maximum benefit from minimum risk. That's what happens. And the results are usually abysmal, aren't they? The king takes and takes and takes and takes, and there really isn't any greater security, just more insecurity, more uncertainty. Sure, we've had lots of stimulus checks and advance payments on child tax credits and paycheck protection loans, and there sure is a lot of free money that's floating around, or is it free? Are you more secure today than you were two years ago? Or have you developed new insecurities of inflation and socialism and world instability? I'll tell you one more reason why men and women are willing to often pay sometimes their lives, but certainly their liberties in exchange for promised phantom security. It's because men and women often don't like grace. I know that seems like a strange thing to say. After all, grace is free. But grace requires humility. It requires dependency. When we pay for something, when we choose something for ourselves, we think we own it and are in control. We think that what we've bought will not make demands on us beyond what we want to allow But on the other hand, when we receive grace, we're not in control. God's in control. He has the right to send us and make us do what he wants. His agenda is is in control. Why? We can only obey the, the giver. And that's why men and women prefer idols to God, even if they have to carry them. The people's desire for a king resulted in Saul whom we will see, is a horrible failure. But thankfully, God has mercy upon his people. And within Samuel's lifetime even, short time period, God had Samuel anoint young David, who would be a king after God's choosing. But even David was not God's ultimate plan for a king for Israel. God will tell David in 2 Samuel 7, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Of whom was God speaking? Ultimately, he was speaking of David's son, many generations removed, Jesus. God's plan for a righteous king like David or some of David's heirs was that they would foreshadow the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded of a day when Jesus stood before the great pagan political power of his day, Pontius Pilate, and Pilate is asking him, are you the king of the Jews? 
And his reply was, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And you can see what he is saying. He is saying, I am not a king like the other nations. The gospel of the New Testament is that there is a king worth having, but he is a king whose kingship is altogether different from the kings demanded by the leaders in 1 Samuel 8, demanded by the populace today in America. He is not of this world. To want a leader like the countries of this world is foolish. To think that you will get security from Human leaders is foolish. Only King Jesus can give us security and peace and justice. And so the message of the gospel is that there is a king whose justice is altogether different from the justice that Samuel warned the people would get from their king. Because Jesus is not a king who takes he is a king who gives. The justice of God is that there is no distinction between individuals for all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And through the gift of grace, we have redemption through King Jesus. And here is a king to judge us. He is one who brings a very different security, a very different peace, a very different justice. We must serve him. You will serve someone. You'll either serve the kings that you choose for yourself or you will serve the King of Kings. And we must tell the world about this King and this Kingdom and pray that He will heal our land and give us a godly government. May the Lord bring conviction in our churches today, in our people today, over what brings true security. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the lesson from 1 Samuel 8 and how your people continue to seek security, comfort, in the things of the world, thinking that being like the other nations would solve their problems, and yet before you was the constant reminder through Samuel that you were their king, but they would not listen. And so we see, we have all of these lessons time after time after time again where the people try to invent and come up with their own solutions that keeps them in control without being willing to give up control to the only one who can provide true security. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to have faith in you and not in all the things that we've set up and layered around ourselves and the ways that we turn to our government to solve our problems. Lord, help us trust in the King of kings. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.